Good morning, everyone. I know I'm not exactly who you expected to see behind the pulpit, <laughs> but yes, I was asked if I, if I was, Lord led me, if I, God, that were actually keeping, I was, I think, asking me if a while back if I wanted to do some teaching on the book of Revelation as we were going through it, and the Lord led me to ask for this week, which I guess seems a little strange considering our topic of discussion. <laughs> yeah, so this is going to be, honestly, because the preview is going to be one of the most scarier parts of the book of Revelation, where we see... In the intro, we saw chapter one, Jesus introduced as, well, let's face it, the hero of the story, but now we're going to see the primary villains come to the light. But I'd say this is exactly what we need to hear today, because if God has led us to it, and we'll see this is exactly how God will work his will, even in the time when these evil fi- when these evil people come to power. I mean, let's face it, like right now, it's keeping us said, like a day, the world seems pretty dark, I mean, we've seen a lot of bad things happen, but Considering what is happening in Revelation, this will be a cakewalk by comparison. And yet, as I said before, God will still work his divine will and his goodness, even in the most evil and trying of times. So let's see where the Lord goes and where he takes us, shall we? So let's just bow our heads in prayer, if we may. God, thank you so much for this day that you can gather us together, Lord, and as sons and daughters of your kingdom, Lord, and as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we just continue to go through this, through, through your word, Lord, that you just continue to speak to our hearts and our minds, Lord. That just your word would be planted in us, and they would just bear fruit and grow, just grow, grow, produce a harvest for your kingdom, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we just read through your word, that you just continue to guide us and to teach us, Lord, and to Lord remind us of where, where who you are, who we are, and where we're all going, Lord. And just the plans that you have for us in the future, your eternal, your goodness, Lord. We will never forget that, Lord, that we never take you for granted. For all these things in your name. Amen. Alrighty. So, today, as I said, we're going to see, see the bad guys come to the fore. So, we see, I think, interestingly, as I was reading, studying for this, I was thinking about like, like a, a quote from, from how many remember the 90s movie with Flip, Flipper with Paul Hogan as the uncle and Elijah Wood as his nephew? There's the big hurricane, and then he come, his uncle finds comes out, finds his uh, sh- the shirt that was given to him, thrown by him by Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. It's all completely tattered and like soaked. He's like, he looks up and says, "Is nothing sacred?" And that's that exact, exact perfect image for what's going to happen today. Because after all, it says, with Satan being the ultimate, the ultimate evil being, there is nothing that is sacred to him. Everything God makes is open season for Satan to distort and try and destroy. And he'll do everything he can to try and counterfeit God's design. And as we see here in the end times, he'll even reach for the most highest, most sacred thing, the very nature and almost character of God. And he'll try to distort that in his own twisted way. And as part of these deceptions in the tribulation period, he'll establish himself, he'll establish for himself a false trinity to try and, I mean, basically, Satan's been trying to do this since the beginning when he tried to rebel against God and lead, put himself in God's place. Now he'll literally try to do that on earth with him, You'll see, this a false trinity. Satan will be able to, like I said, uh, look at the very nature of the trinity just as a first start. We've always seen that they're, always that they're equal in personage, but different in function. Yes? So I'm, an image that was taught to me in, back in my college years was that the, the trinity, they're always equal in personage, but the way they function is God the Father, if you look at them as a human body, God the Father is the brain that inspires and thinks and produces thought. Jesus, as the word, is the mouth. His words speak, and they reflect the nature of the, what the Father thinks. And the Holy Spirit is the lungs, the breath, that works and carries that word to fruition. 
And that's a beautiful thing. But as we see, Satan will establish his, try and establish his own version. And here he will establish himself as in the position of God the Father. He'll have two human followers, one who will be the, fill, fill the role of, quote, or try to counterfeit the role of God the Son as the Antichrist. And then we'll see a third figure emerge as the false Holy Spirit, the false prophet. But, to, but that's, that's for another time. To, we're going to break this into two parts. So today we're going to focus on the Antichrist alone, and then next week we'll see when the false prophet comes. But to introduce that figure, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. And if you'd please stand for the reading of the word when you get there. Let's see. So this is a, remember, a recap for last time. We saw the dragon cast down after the woman gives birth. She, he tries to destroy her with a flood, and then the, the, God, the earth takes away the flood, swallowing up. And then the dragon is, says, there's two different translations. Says that some say that the dragon's standing on the edge of the sea, and then th- th- that's this version, some versions say that John's standing on the edge of the sea as he's witnessing all this. And that's what we pick up in Revelation 13, chapter 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. And we'll read down through verse 10. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. For they, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Yeah, it's not exactly the very lighthearted part of Scripture, and you may be seated now. But it's important for us to learn this, because after all, as we've keeping such on many times, and as we've seen through, through other teachings, that this is the same universal story of God from the beginning of from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, and it's all tied together. And it's important for us to learn because without because the faith, like without the Old Testament, we cannot truly understand the New, and without what we see in the New, we cannot see the fulfillment of the Old. So as dark as it is, they say the quote they say there's a book of Revelation. There's the the door is always darkest when. Exactly. So before God's glory can come, we will see the worst Satan can do. But then, <laughs> Lord, th- thank you, Lord, it'll be completely wiped away when God comes back with Jesus in the second coming. So there are several main. There are three main points that we're going to cover. The first one is that 
the Antichrist will come to establish a new order on the earth. I mean, this is something we've seen like ever since we've heard about since ever since 1992, when we or since 91, when we saw the Soviet Union collapse. But this is a like very much like it's the goal of every it's like call every tyrant, every dictator. They always want to establish a new order, a new way of doing things. They want to put their own stamp on the way world war works. But we'll see. As much as that, as much as he tries to do so, it will, it will only last a short time. That Lord, thank you, Lord. See. The second, see, da da da, and see, in order to establish a new order, we we'll always see that what one thing he has to do is destroy or wipe out the old order, or at least do his best to do so. And so that's why we see that what's happening with the Antichrist, he'll try to wipe out everything that Judeo Christianity stands for in order to make his own stamp, with Satan backing him, of course. The second main point is that the Antichrist represents the return of an older power. I mean, basically think about the way that we do things. As Solomon put it in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that has, everything that's going to be is what has been already. So when the Antichrist comes, as we'll see, tying with, with biblical prophecy, he's nothing new. He's just actually a continuation of, um, very much a return of an older power. As we see, there's actually a book I read called The Empire and the Five Kings, basically looking at the politics more recently in 2018 onward, we can see there's five different nations that are actually that are trying to establish a new way of doing things, but they're actually just old kingdoms trying to come back. It's, I, I could go into that, but this is a time for the Bible, not politics. <laughs> <laughs> but just to establish that, yes, this is, this, and like you said, that Satan has nothing new to offer either, because they basically it's the same three tricks ever since the Garden of Eden. The pride of life, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. That's all he all he can do. Just for that new ways, the new ways of trying to do the same old tricks. And then the third main point is that ah, we see like just as we see today, like I kind of like remember from, like from like all the other events, like uh, just like those described in the. How many of you remember the the Hart Carmen video, uh, Witch's Invitation? Like we're going back to like when it's actually based on real events where there's like a, a satanic priest tried to like confront a Christian minister on like who what can you God do compared to the miracles I can do through Satan? And then Carmen through his song says, quote, I'll not compare God's miracles versus Satan's. Like because the issue is not God's kingdom and Satan's lair. It says the real comparison is the condition of your soul, the condition of mine, and you puppet of the devil, that I will compare. So that just looking at that this is the way that the Satan is able to convince people is that to follow him is because he creates many false miracles and he'll continue to work those through the Antichrist, as we saw in scripture, like a supposedly a, a very deadly wound is healed and they're like, whoa, this guy came back from death. That would be one of the ultimate counterfeits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And sad to say, as it says in scripture, that many will follow him because of the miraculous events that will surround him. I mean, people nowadays are, I mean, nowadays, like ever since the new age, people follow most anything that they say it looks spiritual, like they're no longer concerned about the truth, they just want to follow anything that is supernatural, anything that's beyond the normal. And that's sadly the way that people, that Satan will deceive so many to follow him in the last days and to follow him down the path of destruction that he himself was walking. So, first, coming back to our first point, looking at, you will see this in Revelation chapter 1, or chapter 13, pardon me, verse 1, and then 7 and 8. He says, He saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. On his 
horns, ten crowns, and his head a blasphemous name. So let's keep in mind on where this beast is coming from. Where does John say he's standing when this beast disappears? On the sea. So interestingly, there's a lot of people, people interpret that. One such way is that Oh, yes, and then on verses 7 and 8, before I go on to that point, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Thank you for your patience with me. Okay, so, looking about where this beast comes from, he comes from the sea. A couple of different ways people interpret that usually. They say, oh, it's like, some people say, oh, it's from a place of many peoples. It says, after all, in verse, verse 7, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But there's another way to look at this. What's, what is one of the first things that we see in the book of Genesis, chapter 1? What what, How is the earth described? As formless and void. There's nothing there. And it's formless. It's just, it's chaos. In the sense, just like water. So that's that picture we see in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the circle of the earth, he separates the heavens from the, the heavens from the earth, separates the waters below from the waters above. He's making order from chaos. And so that sense, all throughout scripture, like you see, like when the Jews looked to, looked to the sea, they saw chaos. That's, that's where they see, that's why they feared to sail on it, not just because of those big sea monsters out there, quote unquote, but because it represented Chaos, And where do we see, for example, in the book of Jonah, where does he go as he starts walking away from God? Further and further into chaos as he abandons the order that God had him, as the, had him in as the prophet. And that's the same thing we see here, that as the Antichrist emerges, he is coming, he's emerging from chaos in the end times, and that's why he's trying to build a new order. But it's not just where he's coming from, it's also, in a sense, what he's going to bring. Because after all, he said to build a new order, first thing he has to do is destroy the old one. And that's exactly, you see, the cycle in Revelation chapter 6 with the, the four horsemen. Been, we walked through that several weeks back. This is a refresher. We saw the emergence of a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and then they said a pale horse. And in a sense, those represent four, four different things that are, in a sense, form a very destructive cycle. The first horse, the white horse, is false religion, like the worldly religion that is guided out by anything outside of God's, God's goodness. Then we see that followed by the red horse, which represents, well, it, it more generally, war, and specifically World War III when it comes. And that, in the end, as we saw from past teachings with Keefing, is going to be followed by the worldwide famine, which often follows war. There's a shortage of supplies, and so is high demand after war. And we're going to see that will be followed again by another consequence of war, disease, plague, illness. And the, and the sad, thing, sad thing is that the, those who are looking for power, especially those guided by Satan, are going to be used in order to establish that new order. They always try to use war, famine, disease, plague, to make people more dependent on, on them for their salvation. You see, many, or for, like, whether it's physical salvation or spiritual salvation, every one of those is a tool that can be manipulated. And, like I was saying before, in verse 2, Satan is going to be the guiding influence, the power that backs this, this world leader. Which is interesting, when they call him the Antichrist, which 
the people said like, oh, the funny different world leaders would come up. Oh, look, the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the Antichrist. Well, what, what does it mean to be an antichrist? Like, that's one of the most important things I think we, in order to understand this figure, to define what is antichrist. Well, plainly put, like we've seen before, with, like I mentioned before, cult, the antichrist is a culture or worldview that rejects everything that Judeo-Christian Christianity stands for and will stand in opposition to it. So that's a, it says that everything that Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Christ, antichrist, is not. It's actually so that's so we've seen that the common link between the Old and New Testament is Jesus Christ from Genesis chapter one through Revelation chapter twenty-two. It's a it's a whole the whole Bible is the story of his message, his mission, his purpose, and his promise. So if the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ, is it any surprise that Satan will try to do try to prevent prevent him from? Been being heard and present an uh, present a counterfeit in his place. Interestingly enough, there's actually a image that came to mind when I was studying this. It came from one of C.S. Lewis's books. It's actually quote unquote the Revelation book for the, for the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. It's a time when everything in Narnia, like the world in Revelation, is going into chaos. There's a, the introduction of false belief, of war, and of complete a complete lack of faith for, for a lot of, for a large part of what's going to be presented. At least a lot of people in present will have their faith will be skewed, their faith will be lost, and that's when the greatest deceptions will come in, when the truth is no longer clear and, and it's no longer, you're no longer sure where you stand. And C.S. Lewis is speaking of, he introduces a creature that has been spoken of in other books, but this, this is the first one time it comes into real full view, a figure by the name of Tash. Basically, he's pretended as basically like 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 the White Witch. He's the most one of the most evil beings in Narnia. In fact, he's almost the very personification of Satan. He is a figure that has like has a vulture's head and four arms. He's a monster, like we see in the Revelation. But also, he is a creature that says when he when he comes around, the thing you smell is rotting flesh, because in every way, they worship him in this in the Narnia in the world is this nation of Kalorman. They worship him with human sacrifice. So in every way that say, that Jesus, that Aslan is a figure of life, Tash is a figure that represents death. And so that's exactly what we'll see the, uh, the opposing natures of Jesus and the Antichrist. Aslan, in the end, when he, mention, when the, when he mentions Tash, he says, quote, like he says, quote, is, we are nothing alike. Basically, there's no way that anyone can draw a parallel between Aslan and Tash. He says, for he and I are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done unto me, and no service which is not vile can be done unto him. In a way, that actually, C.S. Lewis as a scholar and as a historian was drawing from a much older tradition in that. We saw like when the, when in the book of Daniel, when the Jews are taken away by Babylon, they are eventually, eventually Babylon's conquered by Persia, and then we see that's when the Jews are allowed to come home that's then when they picked up some of their they, 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 their perception of God was in a sense expanded. Keep in mind, as you see with the Trinity, God's nature was never changed over history, but the way we perceived God, the way we saw Him, changed with us. So that's why we see it in, in, the, in the trial that we saw in the Book of Acts, the trial of Paul. There was a disagreement about the resurrection of the dead. It's because the older the Sadducees who had been part of the older Levitical tradition did not believe in angels, demons, or the resurrection. 
But the Pharisees, who had emerged as the teachers during the Babylonian captivity, they'd picked that up from the Persians and Babylonians, the idea of, that, there's, that it's more than just what, the, what we saw before. Comes like comes back to a book I studied in college as part of my biblical, biblical studies major. It's called The River of God, looking at how our understanding of God changed over the millennia. So we started off with, as Nebuchadnezzar called him, looking at him as the God of gods, looking at as the leader of the pantheon, the, the king of God among the many. But then we see, our, that's, that's what we saw in the most ancient world in the time of like Abraham and before. Then we see the, most, the widespread view of, thanks to, thanks to the, what God taught Israel, we see the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the only true God, and everything else is a counterfeit. But then we see our understanding changed again, as we saw from the book of Genesis, and then as he further expanded and explained by Jesus about the Trinity. Now God is one, but he is three persons. We saw like three, three persons who share that common, that, that common identity, but also the sense they are that common nature of God. The Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, and the Father is God. And that's where we see, going, kind of going back to going back to your point about Persian culture, like that, the idea of two opposing deities, one good and one evil, goes back to the Persians. They had a close to monotheistic system. It was, they had two gods, the one called Ahura Mazda. He was the good god, the creator. And the other, not surprisingly, Satan. Yeah, it's the Persian it means opposer or destroyer. And that exactly describes, even though he's nowhere near, he's, no, he's, he's not God's equal, but he is his opposite, the absence of everything that God is. Like God, was a, God is an eternal being who created the world and everything in it and is the ultimate nature and force, and force of good. Satan is a created being who rebelled against the creator and he has fallen now. He's the ultimate evil being and seeks to destroy or oppose everything that God is and everything he does. And that's what we see going into the book of Revelation, that everything Satan does reflects that nature. If you're ready for the second point. Ah, in the graphic here, you notice that we see there's the dragon representing Satan and the and the, the multi-headed creature, the, 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 the monster that represents the Antichrist. Notice any similarities there? Yeah, they're both described in... The both of them are described in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and 13, as each having seven heads and ten horns, and each of them wears, a crown, wears crowns, multiple crowns. And that's what we see. Like the Antichrist, as I said, as Satan is backing him, the Antichrist will also reflect the, the one who backs him. So both, both of them will be monstrous creatures, in, monstrous in, maybe not in appearance, but in nature, and each of them will try to assume that authority that is no longer theirs. I mean, let's face it, when Jesus, it says when Jesus died on the cross, he said, all power and authority on earth has been given unto me. So these guys, they may wear crowns, but they're just, they're like, they're like Saul after God rejected him. They're just sitting on a throne that doesn't belong to them. And that's why Jesus, in the, when he returns, is going to kick them off, because he says, hey, my chair, you back back off there but then we see okay, this, okay, so let's see, okay. all right so then going into our second point looking at the antichrist representing the return of an older power this for this we'll draw back to my namesake the book of daniel 
After that, we'll turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And here, but as you're turning there, we'll reflect, Daniel had already interpreted, in the, this, the, the, the prophetic section of Daniel will happen in parallel with the historical section. So this is in, uh, this is actually when the, the Daniel is an older man in the time of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. He's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, actually. Because that's actually, there's this thing, where, I'll cover it real quickly. There's this point with the, called the co-ruler system, in which the, a lot of ancient cultures, and some more recently, actually had, had practiced, where then the heir apparent came of age, they would actually join the sovereign, their parent, on the throne as like a junior partner. It's, uh, it shows up in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, when it says, in Nebuchadnezzar, in the fourth year of his reign, conquered Jerusalem, but then more than three years later, mentions chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar has a, the dream of the statue of the different metals, in his first year as king. So that's explained with, Dan, with the, the Daniel chapter 1, the, he, Nebuchadnezzar was the co-ruler, number 2 in the kingdom of Babylon, and then when he had his dream of the, of the statue, he was the sovereign ruler, the number 1. That's why in chapter 5, when Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall, he says, whoever can interpret this will be given gold chain, purple robe, and be made third in the kingdom. His, like, saw that going with the cooler system, Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was the sovereign ruler. Belshazzar himself was the co-ruler. So he could only approve number three because he was number two. And now having made that point, <laughs> or having gone through that, now we go into chapter seven of Daniel. And that's where he sees in the first, he could drawing here, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his, of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings, I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly a second beast, another beast like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Notice any details that are similar? Exactly. So we're seeing... This, that's why I say that you're not to be surprised when this figure comes along because, after all, Daniel, God, God prophesied through Daniel that this leader would come, and we'll see just how that was the first coming of the old power, and we're going to see how this old power comes back.
in actually several several powers, it turns out. So looking at what we saw with Daniel chapter 7, we see the lion, the bear, the leopard, and this, I like to call it either a chimera or a dragon. Because in the sense that it was different from the others. I mean, you don't usually see a lion, a bear, and a leopard having horns, do you? But often people often portray a dragon having horns. Okay, we'll see. So looking at the quick, quick, quick interpretation of the three old, the, the, the four beasts here. The lion represents Babylon, and as it was under Nebuchadnezzar through Belshazzar. It was fast, it was strong, it was like, that's actually, we see the, the imagery here, the wings are a symbol of speed, and the lion is always portrayed as a, as a creature of great power. But then we see it, a change happens. Its wings are plucked off, in other words, it goes from fast to slow, and especially after being lifted up on two feet like a man. I mean, you don't see a bear or a lion being able to walk very fast on two feet, do you? <laughs> no, and then it goes from, it says, it says, the heart of a man is given to it. There's two different ways people interpret that. One say it's like when Nebuchadnezzar was made, a be- made like a beast for seven years, and then he was, his sanity was returned, he was made a man again. There's also another way of looking at it. How often, when people say a man has a lion's heart, what kind of description does that make of him? Yeah, he's a, he's a gladiator, he's a warrior, he's a, he's a brave man, he's fearless, he's a, he's a conqueror in a sense. Kind of like we see like Richard the Lionheart, the king of England back in the day. And so that's, kind of this, we see a reversal here, a lion with a man's heart. What's the analogy? Mm, no, actually it's more like, since like a, if, a, if a man with a lion's heart is supposed to be strong and brave, a lion with a man's heart... Yes, weak and cowardly. More like, 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 like the, like the is my nose bleeding? More like the cowardly lion. In the, it's like the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. So that's we see Babylon has shifted from the days of, Bel- of Nebuchadnezzar, the strong and fast conqueror, to being the meek little kitten under Belshazzar. I mean, basically, he was having a party the very night that his kingdom was conquered. Mm-hmm. So then going on to, ah, the bear. This is, this, it says the bear is raised up on one side, that's the symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire. Medes and the Persians were two different people groups. The Medes were, they actually, for reference sake, they, they dwell in Persia, which is now present-day Iran. So the Medes were the older people, but the Persians were more, call it more modern, more technologically advanced, and so they conquered the Medes, and together with them as their allies, they took on Babylon. And that's where we see the symbolism there. The bear, with the, raised up on one side, that's the Persians dominating over the Medes, and the three ribs in his mouth, <laughs> well, that's all that's left of the lion. That's Babylon being conquered by Persia and devouring the empire. That's how they said, quote, devour, it says, quote, arise, devour much flesh. And they did. They took all Babylon and absorbed it into themselves. Following next in that cycle, we see a leopard with four wings and four heads. Seems a little bizarre, but if you have historical context, it all comes together. So the leopard is a symbolic of, of, of a very swift, very agile empire, one that moves very quickly, maybe not with the same power as the lion, but just as deadly in its own way. The, 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 the conquest we're think, thinking of? Hmm. Who'd the Persians lose to? Alexander the Great and the Greeks. So we see Alexander coming in, like he, he, he talked about more in Daniel chapter 8, You'd see like a the symbol of like a ram meaning for the Persians and a goat representing the Greeks. And you'll see that's more imagery for another time. But anyway, the 
Alexander the Great is going to conquer the, the, conquer the Persian Empire, forge his own empire in his turn, but then Alexander dies at age 32, and his kingdom is divided into four pieces among what they call the, uh, the Diadochi, is the four generals who became the leaders of four kingdoms that before they emerged from Alexander's empire, hence the four wings and the four heads. And then the last creature, the, uh, the dragon or chimera of ancient Greek mythology. This, uh, and by the way, the, the, if you're fellows who don't, aren't in on the know, the chimera was actually like the beasts we see in Revelation or other places. It's a mixture of, of creatures. It's an unnatural being. Chimera was, I remember for summary's sake, was part, was part goat, part lion, and part snake. So we're seeing... The, so, so we see here, again, that's why I say it's, it's also was described as breathing fire and smoke. That's why I call, it's like I call the chimera a dragon. And that's what we see. It's different from the others. It's not, while the, while the others were certainly different, these they were a little, more, a little closer to the natural world than this monstrosity. And the way that we also see this empire represented by their beast is different from the others. And that it was, yes, it conquered the Middle East, but it was more than that. So this empire, with the iron teeth, that kind of leads back to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, like the iron legs, the same empires represented. Rome, the, the Rome that conquered the others, but also says devoured everything in sight. But Rome was different in another way as well, not just the area it conquered, but the very nature of the empire. See, Rome was not a, it was almost a very postmodern culture in the sense that it didn't destroy what it conquered, Rather, it took the best parts of what they conquered and absorbed it into itself. The Romans, they learned like, about, say, art and government from the Etruscans to the north. They learned about architecture and religion from the Greeks. They learned about trade and sailing from the Phoenicians. They learned about astronomy and like, a calculation, or, like, or from the, how to calculate a calendar from the Babylonians. And in that sense, they were, as, they, as they conquered, they grew and they learned. And that's the same thing we see here in Daniel chapter 7, as after this fourth beast emerges with the ten horns. It says that in, the, in verse, seven, verse 12 of that chapter, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So that's the, that's the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, no longer had their power, but because they were part of the Roman Empire... In a way, they got to live on. Then we see, turning back to the horns, in their Revelation chapter, Daniel, describing the little horn and the ten horns before it, we see the Antichrist emerges, because the Antichrist is the little horn. You see, in Revelation chapter 13, 5, and 6, it's described as having a mouth that spoke very pompous things. Ah. We see uh, there's different imagery there in the prophecy. We mentioned that the wings were a symbol of speed or swiftness. And we see in this time it says there are ten horns, both on the beast of based in the fourth beast in Daniel, but on the dragon in Revelation, and again, the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist in Revelation. All of them have ten horns. And those horns are a symbol of strength. It's actually where we saw we saw this in the built into the Old Testament with the altar of God having those four protrusions on the on the altar, the corners. They were called the horns, and that was a symbol of God, of strength and power, a God's strength. And those who went near and took hold of the horns, that was a claim of 
I'm, I'm claiming God's protection. I'm claiming, I'm claiming God as my protect, my, over, my overlord. And that same, that same tradition got passed down into Christianity. So like in the Middle Ages, like we saw that happened with the, uh, well, how do I put this? Sanctuary! Sanctuary! Yeah, everyone knows it from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but that was a true tradition in the Middle Ages where those who went near the altar and grabbed hold of the cloth they covered it, that was the same claim as grabbing the horns of the altar in the Old Testament. It was claiming God's protection. And that's, God, and God's strength is protecting me. And that is where you see the Antichrist and his kingdom and Satan, they will try to claim that, that ultimate power, that strength that will conquer all. But then we see more that this, that little horn that comes up and kind of blasts away three of the horns that came before it. That's where you see the Antichrist will try to say, I, my strength is greater than any before me, and I will conquer anything. No one will stand in my way. But even more so, we see this horn is given eyes. What is, what, what is that with eyes that makes it so special? Well, let's think. When people say they understand something, what do they always say? I see what you mean. So eyes, in that sense, are a, sim- are a prophetic symbol of perception. It's like we saw in, in Revelation chapter six, chapter 5, I think, with the, with the scroll that was rolled up. So who's worthy to open it? You see the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. In that sense of he has, that number seven is the number of completion, that Jesus has complete strength and complete perception. Nothing is out of his reach or out of his sight. And so the Antichrist, by having to draw into that tradition, he says, obviously, he's like a single horn with two eyes, but he'll try to counterfeit that same strength and power. Hmm. And as we see going on to, we see here, the th- going on to the third point, look at the Antichrist, he'll have many miraculous events that will surround him, and that's how he will deceive people into following him. As we saw with Daniel chapter 7, verse 8a, it's like where he tries to overthrow three previous rulers who probably will stand against him. He says, quote, you want to, you want to, you want to stand against me? Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. But while he will have great strength and power in that sense, his primary influence will not be through his might, but rather it will be through his words. As I mentioned, like he has a mouth that speaks pompous or blasphemous things. So as we've mentioned before, that there's Antichrist, there's a culture that stands against everything, but this is the, this guy, the, the Antichrist, will be the ultimate personification of that. He's a, so he's a world leader who will, as you said, looking through false religion, will use it to conquer the world. This is actually spoken of again in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, it's chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. Let me turn there real quick. Uh, so again, this is speaking of something that's, something that's also relatable to Daniel's t- Daniel, closer to Daniel's time, but also speaks to the Antichrist. It says in chapter thirty-six, uh, chapter eleven, pardon me, verses thirty-six through thirty-eight. My mouth is running miles an hour. <laughs> so, Daniel eleven, verse, starting in verse thirty-six. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God. 
for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. So who is this god of fortresses? Well, it'll be him. It says, quote, I'm the ruler, I'm the power, I have the, I have the authority to build these fortresses, worship me. And that's exactly what we'll see in the end. Like the, the, see, they talk about it, and they talk about it in other places of Daniel called the abomination of desolations. They basically it refers to something like Antiochus the Fourth did. He was one of the one, the, 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 one among the among the, the dynasty of the four kings that succeeded Alexander the Great. He came into the temple during the time of the Maccabees. He destroyed the temple, sacked it, and then he set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig to it. In other words, he committed the ultimate abomination to Jewish culture. And that is exactly the same thing. It's a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist will do. We've seen in the temple, the people, the, the people, the Jews have been trying for years, for decades, to build the third temple on the Temple Mount, and the Antichrist will play a role in that. He will establish peace between Israel and the Muslim nations. He will help build the temple in its place on the, on the Temple Mount, and then as it says in other places of scripture, he will stand in it and he will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. Again, Satan saying, I will set myself up in the place of the Most High, I will make myself like God. And again, the Antichrist as a, as a follower and as a puppet of Satan will reflect that. Interestingly though, as I said, his main influence will be through his words, not through his might. It actually goes back to what we saw with, again with the four horsemen, the first horseman representing false religion is also the Antichrist. It mentions this figure as a bow. Interestingly, in many cultures around the world, archers were often considered cowards who shot at their foes from a distance. It's in, like, for example, in Psalm chapter 64, verses 2 through 4, where David is speaking of this, and as he's, being, as he's on, on the run, I believe, from his enemies, so chapter 64, let me turn there real quick, and we will read through that. So chapter 64, verses 2 through 4. He's, yeah, he's, speaking, he's speaking as a prayer to God. He says in verse 2, Hide me from the secret plots... Oh, pardon me, let me know you're in there. Okay, good, just want to make sure. I saw some pages turning. So chapter, chapter 64, verse 2. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. Why are they not afraid? <laughs> You're there, I'm here, you can't get me which is why they're often looked upon as cowards. It's like, why don't you come over here and pick, and pick on me face to face, you darn little, nin, little ninny. <laughs> well, I, I was, I was going to try something else, but I wanted to make sure I was, I'm, I'm clean here. After all, clean mind, clean mouth. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so anyway, look at, that, look at this man with a bow who shoots from a distance. This is like a sniper in a sense. This is a very stark contrast to what we see in Jesus Christ. He's described as the, as the in this revelation when he comes back as the warrior king coming to conquer. And it's, it actually speaks of it in his character. We saw Revelation chapter 1 in verse 16b. 
when I turn the turn the real quick. It says oh, there are seven different qualities of his of his character, but it says in, in chapter one, verse sixteen b, out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. In other words, Jesus is, is a warrior king who fights in the front lines. He doesn't shoot from a distance. He could he could, he could speak and wipe you out, but he prefers to, to do things face to face. He's like. Jesus says, he knocks at the door. He wants to talk to us. He wants to meet with us. And in battle, he does not shy away from doing things. I mean, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, as he was praying, if there was any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he was not afraid to go through the worst of the world could offer if it meant accomplishing the Father's will. And so no surprise that this Antichrist tries to imitate him, but lacks any of the qualities that make Jesus who he is. A rather interesting detail that sometimes gets glossed over in Revelation when we see the four horsemen emerge. It mentions that he comes riding on a white horse, ironically, like Jesus later on, but we'll see that if the Antichrist has a bow, there's a little problem. Where are the arrows? How is he supposed to fight if he doesn't have any arrows in his quiver? Well, how will he win? Well, it mentions in uh, mentioned in Daniel chapter seven, verse eight b, it says the mouth of the little horn was speaking pompous or proud words. So, how, how will the Antichrist succeed? As a political leader, he'll win with words, diplomacy, convincing people to follow him without using his armies to back him. And will he succeed? Well, according to Revelation chapter six, yeah, he's given a crown. He is given the, the symbol of authority. But let us remember, like, what is, what is it that he's, what kind of words is he using? Exactly, blasphemy. But what, is, what, is mean, what does that word blasphemy mean? I mean, we always hear about it. But so like someone speaks something like that, they say, oh, blasphemy! But what does that mean? Well, according to the Greek, it comes from the word blasphema, blasphemia, which basically means slander. It says, it says, quote, by definition, the dictionary says, uh, this is from the New Oxford American Dictionary, says, blasphemy is the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things, profane talk. So in other words, this is ex- everything that is, we say everything that's not sacred, everything that's carnal, everything that's common, everything that's, well, basically the, the dust, the dirt under your feet, that'll be what's coming from the Antichrist's mouth. For those who remember the reference, it's when these people they use words that are false or the things that are, are uh, of no value, of no worth, that comes right off the stable floor. <laughs> and that's exactly what was, will happen in the end. We see the Antichrist will use blasphemy. He will, and they can see, see it happen every day nowadays, but it's going to be even intensified under the Antichrist where everything that is true about God will be trampled underfoot as it was with the beast in, Revela- in Daniel. There's actually a reference to this. We see the like, how and how people are going to eat this up. Unfortunately, it's again reflected in, Chronic, in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Last Battle. He writes about when when, Antic, when C.S. Lewis writes about that. He actually draws it straight from from Revelation, looking at how a false trinity is set up. Tash will come as the false as a false leader, a false Aslan in a sense. Then there'll be a a Tarkhan or a warlord who will be like the Antichrist, and then there will be in the end. It's like one of the talking beasts of Narnia will serve as a false prophet. He's speaking on behalf of Aslan, but everything is everything is, that he speaks is basically in service to himself, while he's speaking on behalf of a false deity. 
this uh, talking beast is, uh, is a being called Shift the Ape. He's a very old, clever beast. He actually pretends to be a man in the end, tries to dress up like a human to deceive the Narnians, and he'll use their ignorance to not only twist their view of him, but sadly to twist their view of Aslan as well. Just as we see the Antichrist will deceive people about who God and Christ are. So in the end, Shift will actually use that there's a, he'll use like a donkey in a lion skin to portray Aslan, the great lion, and he'll use it as a puppet in order to, or it's like a, like this is not even a puppet, he won't speak, but he will use, he'll use it as a, as a figure that people will look to and say, I'm the one who speaks on behalf of Aslan, listen to me. And he'll even go as, but the sad part is that if he's making that alliance with the, with the Kalormans who worship Tash, this demonic evil being, he'll go so far as to twist, the, twist their beliefs in Aslan, saying, quote, there's no, such dif- no difference between Aslan and, the, as, and, and Tash. Aslan and Tash, he says, quote, are one and the same person. And the sad part is that the Narnians will eat that up because they, they, they haven't seen Aslan for a long time. They don't know... They don't haven't seen him personally, so they are really going to be deceived by this false image. And we see, uh, kind of touching all back on the we saw from from Revelation thirteen it says one of the heads. We see the so the many miraculous things, the words he speaks, the way he conquers, the way he will demand to be worshipped, but also this is looking back at the look at this the wounded the wounded head I mentioned in Revelation chapter three verse chapter thirteen verses three and four. That will speak to one of the, quote, miracles or false miracles that will you will use to deceive the world. Going back to Revelation 13, verse 3 and 4, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And that, unfortunately, is where we'll see that sense of, in, this, in the sense, basically says that the Antichrist will have a very cro- close brush with death. Perhaps he'll even, he'll even appear to die and then some, somehow come back in that perversion of the resurrection. And that, in a sense, will, if, he try, if he tries to claim to be Jesus, that will be the ultimate way of trying to deceive anyone who are half-hearted or, or are not Christians at all, saying, oh, Jesus said he would come back from the dead. What do you know? This must be him. But we're warned throughout, throughout many places in Scripture, both the epistles and in the Gospels itself, Jesus says, do not be deceived. He says, when people come saying, I am he, he says, don't fall for that. They are not me. And yet that sense of, that sense of miraculous survival will be what fuels the awe of the world, the awe of the world, and will say, this is, this is the guy we've been looking for. This is the true supernatural being we've been looking for. But the sad part is that we'll see... This is the lie that will be fed, that will be fed to the world, and the many will eat it up. But thankfully, we know that even though this is the lie that's coming, the, we can take heart in the fact that the truth will be revealed, and that the, when people see the see the true Messiah coming, when see Jesus coming on the on the horse to conquer, they're like, "Wait a minute, this is the real guy. How do we fall for this counterfeit?" <laughs> it's because they were blinded. But we will see in the end, even those who were deceived will be revealed to the truth in the end. And we'll see that God will work His will, even through even the most evil beings will follow Him, or basically follow His direction, I should say. Because after all, as you saw in the Book of Job, even Satan himself cannot hide anything from God. Even Satan cannot disobey Him, in the sense that God, even He, is accountable to God Almighty. And that's how we can take heart that 
something my father used to say to me on some of my days that I was feeling my lowest. He said, Daniel, is God still on the throne? I said, yes. Is Jesus still your Lord and Savior? Yes. They put a smile on it. They say, quote, no matter how bad things look, if God is still in control and if he is still the ultimate Savior and ruler of the world, then if God's still, if God's still there in charge, then why are we feeling so down? Because like I said, even these guys, even the false trinity, they'll be held, they'll not only be held to follow, follow God's direction, they'll also, in the end, as we'll see in the future, they'll be held accountable for every single deception they've worked. And they will be punished for eternity for trying to imitate God and deceive the world. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time we got to spend in your word. And <laughs> Let's face it, this has been a pretty heavy time. But I thank you, Lord, that you, that you were able to lead us through this and show that you're, even through the evil, evil, most darkest of times, your, your goodness still prevails. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, for your truth, for your plan that will, your will that will be worked no matter what comes in the end. That said, no matter how dark the darkness gets, your light will conquer all. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can still we're still here and working Your will. That these times have not these times will come, but they have not yet come because Your will for us has not yet been accomplished. And I thank you, Lord, for that we still have time to preach to the world and to, do, to reach out in Your truth and in Your power before these things come. That I pray, Lord, that as we continue to reach out to, as Your Spirit pours into us, that we would plant seeds for Your kingdom, Lord, and just continue to water them and trust You to make them grow. Like, who knows, Lord, that some of the things that we, some people we reach out to today, they may not become Christians now, but they may be part of that last generation of saints, the tribulation saints, that while they will have to face the darkest times of the earth, they will be able to do so and overcome because you are there to guide them, to bring them home. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your teaching, and I pray, Lord, that you just accomplish your will in all of us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>